0: THE VALLEY OF DECISION by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Part Thirteen. Spite of the mountain Madonna's much-vaunted powers, the first effect of the pilgrimage was to provoke a serious indisposition in the Duke. Exhausted by fasting and emotion, he withdrew to his apartments, and for several days denied himself to all but Stern who was suspected by some of suffering his patient's disorder to run its course with a view to proving the futility of such remedies. This break in his intercourse with his kinsman left Odo free to take the measure of his new surroundings. The company most naturally engaging him was that which surrounded the Duchess, but he soon wearied of the trivial diversions it offered. It had ever been necessary to him that his pleasures should touch the imagination as well as the senses. And with such refinements of enjoyment the gallants of Pianura were unacquainted. Odo indeed perceived with a touch of amusement that, in a society where Don Serafino set the pace, he must needs lag behind his own lackey. Cantapresto had, in fact, been hailed by the bishop's nephew with a cordiality that proclaimed them old associates in folly, and the soprano's manner seemed to declare that if ever he had held the candle for Don Serafino, he did not grudge the grease that might have dropped on his cassock he was soon prime favourite and court buffoon in the duchess's circle organising the pleasure parties composing scenarios for her highness's private theatre and producing at court any comedian or juggler the report of whose ability reached him from the market-place indefatigable in the conniving of such diversions he soon virtually passed out of odo's service into that of her highness a circumstance which the young man the less regretted as it left him freer to cultivate the acquaintance of gamba and his friends without exposing them to cantapresto's espionage odo had felt himself specially drawn toward the abbot crescenti and the afternoon after their first meeting he had repaired to the librarian's dwelling crescenti was the priest of an ancient parish lying near the fortress and his tiny house was wedged in an angle of the city walls like a bird's nest in the mouth of a disused cannon a long flight of steps led up to his study which on the farther side opened level with a vine-shaded patch of herbs and damask roses in the projection of a ruined bastion this interior the home of a studious peace was as cheerful and well-ordered as its inmates mind and odo seated under the vine pergola in the late summer light and tasting the abbot's val Pulicella, while he turned over the warped pages of old codes and chronicles, felt the stealing charm of a sequestered life. He had learned from Gamba that Crescentia was a faithful parish priest as well as an assiduous scholar, but he saw that the librarian's beneficence took that purely personal form which may coexist with a serene acceptance of the general evil's underlying particular hardships his charities were performed in an old unquestioning spirit of the roman distribution of corn and doubtless the good man who carries his loaf of bread and his word of hope into his neighbor's hovel reaps a more tangible return than the lonely tinker who schemes to undermine the strongholds of injustice still there was a perplexing contrast between the superficiality of crescenti's moral judgments and the breadth and penetration of his historic conceptions odo was too inexperienced to reflect that a man's sense of the urgency of improvement lies mainly in the line of his talent as the merchant is persuaded that the roads most in need of mending are those on which his business makes him travel odo himself was already conscious of living in a many-windowed house with outlooks diverse enough to justify more than one view of the universe but he had no conception of that concentration of purpose that may make the mind's flight to its goal as direct and unvarying as the course of a homing-bird the talk turning on gamba cresenti spoke of the help which the hunchback gave him in his work among the poor his early hardships said he have given him an insight into character that my happy circumstances have denied me and he has more than once been the means of reclaiming some wretch that I despaired of. Unhappily, his parts and learning are beyond his station, and will not let him rest in the performance of his duties. His mind, I often tell him, is like one of those inn parlours hung with elaborate maps of the three heretical cities. WHEREAS THE ONLY TOPOGRAPHY WITH WHICH THE VIRTUOUS TRAVELER NEED BE ACQUAINTED IS THAT OF THE HEAVENLY CITY TO WHICH ALL OUR JOURNEYINGS SHOULD TEND. THE SOUNDNESS OF HIS HEART REASSURES ME AS TO THIS DISTEMPER OF THE REASON, BUT OTHERS ARE LESS FAMILIAR WITH HIS GOOD QUALITIES, AND I TREMBLE FOR THE RISKS TO WHICH HIS RASHNESS MAY EXPOSE HIM the librarian went on to say that gamba had a pretty poetical gift which he was suspected of employing in the composition of anonymous satires on the court the government and the church at that period every italian town was as full of lampoons as a marsh of mosquitoes and it was as difficult in the one case as the other for the sufferer to detect the specific cause of his sting the moment in Italy was a strange one. The tide of reform had been turned back by the very act devised to hasten it, the suppression of the Society of Jesus. The shout of liberation that rose over the downfall of the Order had sunk to a guarded whisper. The dark legend already forming around Ganganelli's death, the hint of that secret liquor distilled for the Order's use in a certain convent of Perugia, hung like a menace on the political horizon and the disbanded society seemed to have tightened its hold on the public conscience as a dying man's clutch closes on his victorious enemy so profoundly had the jesuits impressed the world with a sense of their mysterious power that they were felt to be like one of those animal organisms which when torn apart carry on a separate existence in every fragment ganganelli's bull had provided against their exerting any political influence or controlling opinion as confessors or as public educators but they were known to be everywhere in italy either hidden in other orders or acting as lay agents of foreign powers as tutors in private families or simply as secular priests even the confiscation of their wealth did not seem to diminish the popular sense of their strength perhaps because that strength had never been completely explained even by their immense temporal advantages it was felt to be latent in themselves and somehow capable of withstanding every kind of external assault they had moreover benefited by the reaction which always follows on the breaking up of any great organization their detractors were already beginning to forget their faults and remember their merits the people had been taught to hate the society as the possessor of wealth and privileges which should have been theirs but when the society fell its possessions were absorbed by the other powers and in many cases the people suffered from abuses and maladministration which they had not known under their jesuit landlords the aristocracy had always been in sympathy with the order and in many states the jesuits had been banished simply as a measure of political expediency a sop to the restless masses in these cases the latent power of the order was concealed rather than diminished by the presence of a more liberal government and everywhere in one form or another the unseen influence was felt to be on the watch for those who dared to triumph over it too soon such conditions fostered the growth of social satire constructive ambition was forced back into its old disguises and ridicule of individual weaknesses replaced the general attack on beliefs and institutions satirical poems in manuscript passed from hand to hand in coffee-houses casinos and drawing-rooms and every conspicuous incident in social or political life was borne on a biting quatrain to the confines of the state the duke's gift of boscofolto to the countess belverde had stirred up a swarm of epigrams and the most malignant among them crescenti averred were openly ascribed to gamba a few more impudences he added must cost him his post and if your excellency has any influence with him i would urge its being used to restrain him from such excesses odo on taking his leave of the librarian ran across gamba at the first street corner and they had not proceeded a dozen yards together when the eye of the duke's kinsman fell on a snatch of doggerel scrawled in chalk on an adjacent wall beware the quatrain ran o virtuous wife or maid our ruler's fondness for the shade lest first he woo thee to the leafy glade and then into the deeper woods persuade this crude play on belverde's former title and the one she had recently acquired was signed carlo gamba odo glanced curiously at the hunchback who met the look with a composed smile my enemies don't do me justice said he i could do better than that if i tried and he effaced the words with a sweep of his shabby sleeve other lampoons of the same quality were continually cropping up on the walls of pianura and the ducal police were kept as busy rubbing them out as a band of weeders digging docks out of a garden. The duchess's debts, the duke's devotions, the Belverde's extortions, Heligenstern's mummery, and the political rivalry between Trescori and the Dominican were sauce to the citizens' daily bread. But there was nothing in these popular satires to suggest the hunchback's trenchant irony. It was in the bishop's palace that Odo read the first lampoon in which he recognized his friend's touch. In this society of polished dilettantes such documents were valued rather for their literary merits than for their political significance, and the pungent lines in which the duke's panaceas were hit off, the Belverde figuring among them as a Lenten diet, a dinner of herbs, and a wonder-working bone, caused a flutter of professional envy in the Episcopal circle. The bishop received company every evening, and Odo soon found that, as Gamba had said, it was the best company in Pianora. His lordship lived in great state in the Gothic palace adjoining the cathedral. The gloomy, vaulted rooms of the original structure had been abandoned to the small fry of the episcopal retinue. In the chambers around the courtyard his lordship drove a thriving trade in wines from his vineyards, while his clients awaited his pleasure in the armory, where the panoplies of his fighting predecessors still rusted on the walls. Behind this façade a later prelate had built a vast wing overlooking a garden which descended by easy terraces to the Piana. In the high-studded apartments of this wing the bishop held his court and lived the life of a wealthy secular nobleman. His days were agreeably divided between hunting, inspecting his estates, receiving the visits of antiquarians, artists, and literati, and superintending the embellishments of his gardens, then the most famous in North Italy, while his evenings were given to the more private diversions, which his age and looks still justified. In religious ceremonies, or in formal intercourse with his clergy, he was the most imposing and sacerdotal of bishops, but in private life none knew better how to disguise his cloth. He was, moreover, a man of parts, and from the construction of a Latin hexameter to the growing of a Holland bulb had a word worth hearing on all subjects likely to engage the dilettante. A liking soon sprang up between Odo and this versatile prelate, and in the retirement of his lordship's cabinet or pacing with him the garden alleys set with ancient marbles, the young man gathered many precepts of that philosophy of pleasure which the great churchmen of the eighteenth century practised with such rare completeness the bishop had not indeed given much thought to the problems which most deeply engaged his companion his theory of life took no account of the future and concerned itself little with social conditions outside his own class but he was acquainted with the classical schools of thought and having once acted as the late Duke's envoy to the French court, had frequented the Baron Dolbach's drawing-room and familiarized himself with the views of the encyclopedists, though it was clear that he valued their teachings chiefly as an argument against asceticism. "'Life,' said he to Odo, as they sat one afternoon in a garden pavilion above the river, a marble mercury confronting them at the end of a vista of clipped myrtle life cavaliere is a stock on which we may graft what fruit or flower we choose see the orange tree in that capo de monte jar in a week or two it will be covered with red roses here again is a citron set with carnations and but yesterday my gardener sent me word that he had at last succeeded in flowering a pomegranate with jasmine in such cases the gardener chooses as his graft the flower which by its colour and fragrance shall most agreeably contrast with the original stock and he who orders his life on the same principle grafting it with pleasures that form a refreshing offset to the obligations of his rank and calling may regard himself as justified by nature who as you see smiles on such abnormal unions among her children not long ago, he went on with a reminiscent smile, I had here under my roof a young person who practiced to perfection this art of engrafting life with the unexpected. Though she was only a player in a strolling company, a sweetheart of my wild nephews, as you may guess, I have met few of her sex whose conversation was so instructive or who so completely justified the scriptural adage THE SWEETNESS OF THE LIPS INCREASETH LEARNING. HE BROKE OFF TO SIP HIS CHOCOLATE. BUT WHY, HE CONTINUED, DO I TALK THUS TO A YOUNG MAN WHOSE PATH IS LINED WITH SUCH OPPORTUNITIES? THE SECRET OF HAPPINESS IS TO SAY WITH THE GREAT EMPEROR EVERYTHING IS FRUIT TO ME WHICH THY SEASONS BRING, O NATURE. SUCH A CREED, Monseigneur, ODO VENTURED TO RETURN, is as flattering to the intelligence as to the senses for surely it better becomes a reasoning being to face fate as an equal than to cower before it like a slave but since you have opened yourself so freely on the subject may i carry your argument a point farther and ask how you reconcile your conception of man's destiny with the authorized teachings of the church the bishop raised his head with a guarded glance said he the ancients did not admit the rabble to their sacred mysteries nor dare we permit the unlettered to enter the hallowed precincts of the temple of reason true odo acquiesced but if the teachings of christianity are the best safeguard of the people should not those teachings at least be stripped of the grotesque excrescences with which the superstitions of the people and perhaps the greed and craft of the priesthood have smothered the simple precepts of jesus the bishop shrugged his shoulders as long said he as the people need the restraint of a dogmatic religion so long must we do our utmost to maintain its outward forms in our market-place on feast-days there appears a strange figure of a man who carries a banner painted with an image of st paul surrounded by a mass of writhing serpents this man calls himself a descendant of the apostle and sells to our peasants the miraculous powder with which he killed the great serpent and mortar. If it were not for the banner and the legend, the descendant from St. Paul, how much efficacy do you think those powders would have? And how long do you think the precepts of an invisible divinity would restrain the evil passions of an ignorant peasant? It is because he is afraid of the plaster god in his parish church, and of the priest who represents that god that he still pays his tithes and forfeitures and keeps his hands from our throats by diana cried the bishop taking snuff i have no patience with those of my calling who go about whining for apostolic simplicity and would rob the churches of their ornaments and the faithful of their ceremonies for my part he added glancing with a smile about the delicately stuccoed walls of the pavilion through the windows of which climbing roses shred their petals on the rich mosaics transferred from a roman bath for my part when i remember that 'tis to jesus of nazareth i owe the good roof over my head and the good nags in my stable the very venison and pheasants from my preserves with the gold plate I eat them off, and above all the leisure to enjoy as they deserve these excellent gifts of the Creator. When I consider this, I say, I stand amazed at those who would rob so beneficent a deity of the least of his privileges. But why, he continued again after a moment, as Odo remained silent, should we vex ourselves with such questions, when Providence has given us so fair a world to enjoy, and such varied faculties with which to apprehend its beauties. I think you have not seen the Venus calipage in bronze that I have lately received from Rome? And he rose and led the way to the house. This conversation revealed to Odo a third conception of the religious idea. In Piedmont, religion imposed itself as a military discipline, the enforced duty of the Christian citizen to the heavenly state. To the Duke, it was a means of purchasing spiritual immunity from the consequences of bodily weakness. To the Bishop, it replaced the panem et circenses of ancient Rome. Where in all this was the share of those whom Christ had come to save? Where was St. Francis's devotion to his heavenly bride, the lady poverty though here and there a good parish priest like crescenti ministered to the temporal wants of the peasantry it was only the freethinker and the atheist who at the risk of life and fortune laboured for their moral liberation odo listened with a saddened heart thinking as he followed his host through the perfumed shade of the gardens, and down the long saloon at the end of which the Venus stood, of those who, for the love of man, had denied themselves such delicate emotions, and gone forth cheerfully to exile or imprisonment. These were the true lovers of the Lady Poverty, the band in which he longed to be enrolled. Yet how restrain a thrill of delight, as the slender, dusky goddess detached herself against the cool marble of her niche, looking in the sun-rippled green penumbula of the saloon, with the sound of water falling somewhere out of sight, as though she had just stepped dripping from the wave. In the Duchess's company life struck another gate. Here was no waiting on subtle pleasures, but a headlong gallop after the cruder sort. Hunting, gaming, and masquerading filled Her Highness's days, and Odo had felt small inclination to keep pace with the cavalcade, but for the flying huntress at its head. To the Duchess's view halloo every drop of blood in him responded, but a vigilant image kept his bosom barred. So they rode, danced, diced together, but like strangers who cross hands at a vegleone. Once or twice he fancied the Duchess was for unmasking, but her impulses came and went like fireflies in the dusk, and it suited his humour to remain a looker on. So life piped to him during his first days at Pianora, a merry tune in the bishop's company, a mad one in the duchess's, but always with the same sad undertone, like the cry of the wind on a warm threshold. End of Book Two, Part Thirteen